Hey, this is John Leon from White Wizard, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. of the John Leone from White Wizard interview. And in this segment, he's going to talk about all of the former members uh, that were in the band. So if you're interested in hearing his side of things, this is where you're going to hear them. Uh, Before doing that, let's get into a snippet of another song off of Flying Tigers, the idea here is to see if you guys go out and do that pre-order or check the album out once it does come out on September 19th. Uh, The name of this track is Star Child. You can actually listen to this uh, up on YouTube. Eureka's has actually uploaded it there, but we're going to include it here for you. An angel of my dreams you are A song of sirens evermore Blessing for my weary soul Beautiful star child I adore A love so sacred in your eyes Sent to me by God's on high Forever the one I shall embrace See so
As far as uh, what you initially mentioned, do you want to get into um, why uh, Mach One and Mach Two is uh, still no longer around, or do you uh, would you prefer to? I mean, pass I can I can give some I can give some short versions. I mean, I don't want to get into some rambling, you know, long explanations that are going to make everybody bored. Because again, it's all hearsay, man. I mean, everything that you hear from me, everything anybody hears from them. You know, chalk it up to the truth lies somewhere in between and move on. I mean, anybody who really yeah. cares about the music really doesn't care. I mean, you know, gee, I'll give you some quick, if you want me to give you some quick synopsis of what happened, I'd be glad to. Um, as far as how the band formed, I formed it in summer of 2007. I played with uh, Luna in a band shortly called Jet Fuel, and um, I liked his vocals, and I thought he had a lot of potential. And when I was forming the band, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. 
I'd written three songs pretty much in their completion, about 90%, guitar and bass, et cetera, which were now Celestina, Octane Gypsy, and Megalodon. Those are kind of the first three songs that I wrote for White Wizard. Um, and I invited Luna over to my place. Actually, I went up to his place in Pasadena at first and talked to him. And he was doing a project with Tyler, who had also played in, in Jetfield, who is now in Holy Grail, who would be in White Wizard as well. And he, um, they were playing demos, and it was cool, but it was kind of, you know, kind of stoner rocking to me. I was like, eh, you know, and I kind of talked to Luna. I said, look, I kind of got this vision, you know, and I, I'd really, I really like to push you. I, I think you have a lot of potential as a singer, and I'd like to see you push yourself. And so we had some talks, and he came and listened to the demos with Tyler, and they liked what they heard. And I said, look, you know, I'm going to look for a guitar player. They said, great, contact us. You know, I said, I'm going to stay on bass, obviously, even though I play both instruments. And you know, try to find a really shredding killer guitar player. And I put a Craigslist ad out, and lo and behold, not less than a week later, it was meant to be somehow, um, James LaRue contacted me. Um, and you know, I'll never forget his response. In my, in my Craigslist ad, I put out that I was looking for, you know, Dave Murray was one of the influences, you know, that I was mentioning, you know, and, and the guitar player that should, you know, come forward. And he gave right. me this paragraph-long explanation why Adrian Smith was a better guitar player than Dave Murray. <laughs> and I was like, all right, who is this guy? You know, come over, man. You, you, we got to meet. So he came over, and I had just written everything for a song called March of the Skeletons, minus the fast part at the end where there's a lead. Um, but the verse, pre-chorus, and chorus, I'd kind of written that day. And, and James came over, and I taught him all the parts, man. And the guy was just unbelievable. I mean, he was the best guitarist I'd ever played with. He learned the stuff so fast. His, his technique was just brilliant. He was so tight. And when I take, I mean, when we played together, it was just like we didn't even have a drummer, and it sounded like, I mean, as tight as I'd ever heard in my life. I mean, we were just locked, you know. It was instant chemistry, and I had him come back over a couple more times. I taught him the other three songs, and really, we started out with those four songs. And I called up Tyler and, and James. I said I found this killer guitar player, you know. And Tyler came down the first time. We went to this hourly lockout. We played the songs. And it just sounded killer, you know, it just was working. And then Luna came down, and he was really impressed with it. And um, that's kind of what the, the band was formed out of, was that kind of initial moment. And the early going, it was very collaborative and very exciting. Um, you know, we, we, everything happened, you know, we, we named the band together, we, we talked about these plans, you know, and we, we really kind of were all on the same page in the beginning. And um, from there, um, you know, other songs were written. The, the song Red Desert Skies, I, uh, I actually took LaRue down to Guitar Center. The one thing is his guitar rig wasn't really good, and I'm kind of a picky about tone, and I told him, you know, you got to, you know, I kind of helped him form his tone. You know, I wanted him to kind of, you know, find a really good amp, and, and, and we found him one, and I remember when I was at Guitar Center, the riffs for Red Desert Skies kind of came out of me when we were, like, there. And we went back to the studio, and LaRue sat in with me and helped me, you know, we kind of arranged the chorus together, and, and a couple other parts, and you know that was kind of the song that was um, a little bit of LaRue getting involved with me and collaborating, and we created that tune. And then um, High Speed GTO was uh, actually created out of, there was some demos from those stoner rock jams that Luna had been playing with, uh, with some other friends of his. And there was a couple of riffs that I dug, and I was like, you know, what are those riffs? And basically, High Speed GTO was probably the most collaborative song on the EP. Um, we sat in Luna's room and we arranged that actually. LaRue came up with a really cool melody hook, which I think is probably the coolest part of the song, um, which is that just, you know, that lead that overlaps over each, you know, before each chorus or before each verse. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really collaborative. Um, you know, it came out of a couple of original jams that Luna had uh, originally had on tape, but I was at the helm. We, we sat down and I helped form it, kind of form the whole thing. We sat down, we talked about it. 
And um, we kind of created that, all three of us, you know, really working hard. And even Tyler really was involved. He came up with that little cool little drum intro. And um, that song's just a really good example of, like, when four guys that have a lot of talent are together and they're all on the same page working together and bouncing ideas from each other, a song like that can come out. And, you know, it turned out to be, of course, a fantastic song and, you know, kind of is the, the song that kind of catapulted the video and, you know, kind of started the whole thing. And then the last song, Into the Night, um, actually came out of some jams that James LaRue had on tape, a thing called Atomic Explosion he had sent me. And I kind of sat down with James and we rearranged that and then we rearranged the verse, or we rearranged the pre-chorus and chorus in the studio. And um, we pretty much had seven songs at that point. And it was really early. I mean, we'd probably done that within a month of all getting together. You know, it all came together really, really quick. And um, kind of helped that I had those first, you know, four tunes, but those last still came together, you know, in a really quick amount of time. And we booked the studio and we were like, you know, hey, let's go in, let's, you know, let's track these songs, um, let's put a demo out. That was really what High Speed GTO was supposed to be, was a demo of seven songs, you know, nothing more, just to get some attention and to start touring and stuff. And we, uh, we went in, some of, the, some of the turmoil in the band really started from a creative aspect when we went in the studio. Um, I actually had wanted to work with Ralph Patlin, but he wasn't available. And Luna and Tyler had a friend named Chris, and he kind of had a little studio in Silver Lake, which is a part of Los Angeles. And he, you know, basically worked us a deal. So at the time, we threw in. Um, LaRue, myself, and Tyler all threw, I think, about 800 bucks together each. And we uh, went in, and we uh, started recording with Chris. But when we started recording, um, you know, Chris the producer was into heavier stuff and he started convincing Tyler and Luna were his buddies, you know, and, and I was kind of an outsider with Chris. I wasn't kind of in his clique. And we started kind of button heads creatively right away. One of my big things that I was rebelling against when I formed White Wizard was the attitude that all metal has to be a certain amount of heavy, you know. I wanted songs to swing like Celestina, you know, and GTO, et cetera. I wanted to kind of, you know, mix things up and give metal a little shot in the arm at good times, you know, and, um, and right. not try to just be heavy, you know, and, and he was into stuff like Hatebreed and into stuff like, you know, Danzig and, and Slayer, and I love all that stuff, but it just wasn't really what, what we were going for, and he started convincing Luna and Tyler that, you know, that we needed to rewrite some of the songs if we're ever going to get signed, and basically Tyler and Luna, one of the big kind of first moments with us was we sat, and Tyler and Luna started trying to convince me to let, you know, this guy have a couple producers come in and rewrite the material. And I had a big problem with that. I was like, no way. We've got seven killer songs. I said, there's no way. It's boy band crap as far as I'm concerned. And that's not why I'm in this. And Tyler and Luna, I remember, never forget the question they asked me. They said, well, how bad do you want to make it? And I said, I said, dude, if it means, if it means compromising myself as an artist and selling my ass in that sense, I'd rather go back to, you know, doing what I do and not make it. Because I said, I'm, I'm doing this 100% the way that, you know, I mean, it, I, was, I was pretty determined, you know, I wasn't definitely going to have anyone rewrite our material. And I, I kind of got the impression with that sit down, it was a pretty heated discussion that Tyler and Luna would probably let anybody write a song for them if they thought they could quote unquote make it. And I just really think that was the beginning of me kind of losing respect as an artist um, more than anything else. And if I lose artistic respect, then, you know, it's, you know, it's all going to be downhill from there. So right. from that moment, you know, what happened was actually after that, you know, we went in, the vocal melodies were still really loose. Um, and, and I remember that, uh, you know, we all collaborated on lyrics on that. I, I got to give credit, you know, that definitely, I wrote the majority of GTO, but, but Luna and LaRue definitely had a, a good amount to do with, with certain aspects of it. It was very collaborative time, you know. It was very, very 
mutual in the sense of the camaraderie in its creation with me at down with it, you know? And at that time, we, we kind of collaborated on lyrics. We'd all kind of put our pieces into it, et cetera. And at that point, the, the vocal melodies were still a little shaky as well. And luckily, a guy came in named Matt Hyde, who um, really kind of saved the day with the vocal melodies. Because I remember when we were going in the studio, LaRue and I had a, a conversation, and we weren't sure if Luna was even ready, because he was being kind of difficult with vocal melodies, and we were trying to kind of come up with stuff. And really, Matt Hyde helped shape those vocal melodies in the studio, and really is kind of a, you know, he definitely deserves a, uh, a big credit for how High Speed GTO ended up. Because really, he was kind of that last guy, you know, again, a great example of a producer kind of, you know, putting his own stamp on things. Um, he had a lot to do with shaping those vocal melodies and really helping the, the, the EP take shape. There was definitely some, you know, important props needed to be thrown out to him. And uh, after that, Chris, their friend, who, you know, again, I, I said him and I were really on the same page, he attempted to make the song Megalodon, I believe. And, and LaRue and I listened to it, and it just, was, it just wasn't working. We just felt like he just, you know, wasn't up to snuff. It was sounding pretty, you know, pretty bad. And that's when I called Ralph, and Ralph decided he would work me a deal for like, you know, a thousand bucks. He'd mix seven songs, and which was a pretty good deal considering his, you know, he just got done working with Megadeth, you know, and he had an SSL console and a really high-end studio. And I was like, all right, man, I got the hard drive. I overnighted it to him, and that guy mixed uh, GTO in 15 hours overnight. He did it from, <laughs> I believe, about 6 o'clock in the evening until 9 a.m. the next day, and it's exactly how you hear it now. He sent it back to me. And LaRue and I were absolutely thrilled with the mixes. We couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I just was like, this is killer. You know, this is almost like it's gone from a demo to being, you know, possibly what you could release as a record, you know. It right. was that much of a difference, you know. You hear that saying on the mix, well, no, no more apparent than that. So we, we got the mixes, um, and then we basically uh, we presented them to Tyler and Luna, and they hated them. They absolutely could. Huh. As you hear them now, they, they absolutely hated the mixes. And Tyler has some experience in Pro Tools because he'd been kind of working under Chris. And Tyler, you know, one good example is he was really into Slipknot and stuff like that. He, we were really on different pages creatively, and he wanted to remix it. He was like, I want to remix it. And LaRue was kind of indifferent. He hated confrontation. And he was like, well, you know, you better just be democratic and let, you know, Tyler have a shot at it. And I was like, you know, it was kind of rough for me because, I mean, you're talking about a guy that's worked with Michael Shanker and Megadeth and, you know, blah, 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 versus a kid with like a few months pro experience. But I was like, all right, right. you know, go ahead. What the hell? What, what can it hurt? You know, but it, it kind of became a battle as we went on as Tyler presented mixes and I just, they weren't working. And, and Luna was kind of on Tyler's page. LaRue was indifferent, kind of became me against them. And over time there ended up being a real kind of, you know, issue with that kind of starting to form. And, and also with just the creative aspect of things, I think, um, Luna started kind of wanting to get out of my, out from under my songwriting control. I think he started wanting to kind of write heavier stuff. Um, Tyler was really into heavy stuff like Slipknot, et cetera, and a lot of heavier bands. So, and, and they started kind of being, I think, convinced that they at the time really didn't believe in what White Wizard was doing. I think they only had kind of one foot in the door with it and started to kind of think between that producer who thought we should be heavier and everything that, you know, I, I remember Luna saying he didn't really like Celestina, didn't like some of the tunes. Um, LaRue was pretty bored with it because he, I think one thing that he felt creatively held back by me was, is I wanted to serve the song first. Where LaRue's the type of dude, man, he wants to put, he wants to invent new scales to put in the song. He's just a monster shredder guitar player. <laughs> and he, right. he's not a serve the song first guitar player as much as he is. He's a guy that really wants to show his technical prowess off. And he wants to be, you know, he wants to be at the forefront. And I also wrote the majority of the guitar riffs on that record. And I think, 
Johan Gio, and I think he, he wanted to kind of, you know, expand his palette, and I was pretty dead set in my vision of kind of what White Wizard should be. So over time, um, there was those, those conflicts, which was definitely a big, you know, aspect of kind of the beginnings of the falling of the band, and, um, you know, it, it kind of, that obviously bled over into, you know, kind of, you know, communicating less, you know, personal issues coming up. And another big issue for me, probably the biggest issue, was that I was investing the most money, um, and Luna never invested a dime in it. And it was, a lot of it was between him and I. LaRue did invest some money, Tyler a little bit. But, you know, I was far and above. I had, you know, four grand into this thing by the time the EP was done. Um, and Luna just wasn't spending any money. And I had a really big problem with him, and I started calling him out on it. And he was missing practices. And, you know, at the time, you know, he wasn't taking things very seriously. And I, I had a lot of problems, and we started to, you know, it started became, becoming the front man versus the visionary, you know. It's, those, those kind of ego clashes inevitably started to happen, I think. Um, and, you know, how, how we handled it, could we have done things differently, communicated better? Um, could I have handled things better? Of course, definitely. I mean, that, that, those, are, those are stories that could take forever to tell as far as the individual, you know, little things that happen when you get in arguments, et cetera. But at the end of the day, that's really at the core what happened, was you had a lot of people see Luna as the conduit to them making a lot of money, I think. I think a lot of people see Luna as, and he's a fantastic front man. Um, and so I think I ended up kind of in a situation where, you know, it was either Luna and I needed to compromise to make it work, but it was becoming pretty evident that neither of us were really willing to do so enough, you know, um, maybe hindsight 2020, maybe if we both could go back in time, we would deal with things differently. But, um, in the end, I think that was a big part of it. And I remember one big moment was when I sat down with the guys and I said, look, I said, you know, I, I, I we need to trade name. I'm in for $4,000. I'm about to invest more. Um, I don't want to continue to invest money without having, you know, this solid, are you guys willing to go in on it? Nobody was. And I was like, it cost like 800 bucks. So I ended up having to trademark the band name as well, trademark everything to protect myself and my own investments that I had in it, you know. And I just got to a point where, I think, I think they got to a point where they knew that they kind of were not in for the long haul. And I kind of sensed that too. And, and really when we split, um, it, it, it was more of a mutual, I mean, even, even more, I think it was them walking away with Luna, you know, it was kind of Luna's good, wants to go this way. And Luna and I were kind of button heads and we weren't on the same page anymore. And I think that, you know, I think Tyler and LaRue, you know, we, we had some issues as well. Of course, Tyler and I, because of the mixes and um, in the interim between all of that, the thing that really saved us that everyone in this entire, the Holy Grail and myself owe a debt of gratitude to is Davey Voorhees because the guy that basically made the high-speed GTO video. I think we all wouldn't even be talking to you or wouldn't even be doing this right now if it wasn't hmm. for Davey coming and doing that video because that's what got us noticed, man. I mean, he, that guy, I, I posted the Ralph's mixes on the MySpace. That was the first thing Tyler was mad because after two months of hearing his mixes, I was like, dude, I'm putting the songs up, you know, forget about it. And he kept trying to push the mixes on me. And, and, and basically, Davey heard those songs on MySpace and he had come to L.A., for one reason, to make heavy metal videos, and he was looking for a band to uh, make a video. And he was willing to do it for free, and he called us up, and he said, dude, I want to do a video for you guys for free. I'll finance it and everything. Came down, had all these killer ideas. We chose GTO because it was the most collaborative song, and, and also the song was written about my car. I've got a 1969 GTO convertible, which you've seen in the videos. Right. Um, that's my car. That song, that was the whole thing. I wanted to write a song about my car, and that's why we created that song about my car. 
And we thought, what perfect thing to do but throw the guys in the back, have me drive, break him the law style with the top down, and um, <laughs> go drive around. And then there was this whole concept with the wizard. And, you know, it sounded kind of corny at the time, but, you know, I'll be damned. The guy made it work. I mean, you end up with this B, kind of B, B type of video that's just like, you know, really entertaining. And I couldn't believe it when he brought the edits. Unfortunately, it was towards when the band was, you know, on the downswing. He brought the edits down, and we all watched it. And, I mean, it was just absolute. You know, I just couldn't believe what this guy had made out of the budget that he had and uh, what we had to work with. And it just really worked, you know. And I think I feel bad for Davey because the band split up the day that he posted it. <laughs> you know? huh. he, he posted, poor guy, I posted this thing on YouTube, does it all for free. And the guys basically walked away and when they decided he wanted to do something different and they followed him. And uh, I had to keep going. And that's pretty much, you know, at least at the end of the split up of White Wizard. Um, why it all, you know, kind of went um, and, and ended up splitting. And that, what's funny is this was like a year before GTO was even released by Eric. I mean, we weren't signed at the time. No one knew who we were. And, and really, I mean, it was just one of those things that we figured would fizzle and we'd go our separate ways. And, you know, I remember, you know, LaRousse and Alvin saying, it's your baby, keep it going. You know, they acted really uninterested in White Wishes at the time. And, and so I kind of kept it going. And that's when, you know, that's, that's when things kind of took an, an interesting turn. I, uh, I went uh, to uh, like that music store I told you. I found that Flying B. I was, right. you know, determined to, to keep going, and I started writing new material. And, and oddly enough, about a few weeks into our split, with the video being out there, um, a guy named I believe it was EJ from Prosthetic Records reached out to me, <laughs> and uh, emailed me through the MySpace, and he was like, "Hey, you know, I want to give you a call." And I was like, "All right." And he called me up, and I'll never forget the first thing he said. He's like, "Where have you been all my life?" And I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, <laughs> "Your band. This is incredible. You know, I'm totally interested in you guys." And then, so really, the first interest in White Wizard came to me through EJ from Prosthetic Records. And I was like, "Well, dude, um, you know, that's great, but I, I think that you know the band's pretty much toast, and um, you know, the singer and I are not seeing eye to eye, and he wants to do his thing, and um." you know, I'm really kind of reforming the band. And, you know, we had a fantastic conversation about a 30 minute conversation. And, you know, it was really, really actually a really positive talk. But at the end, it was kind of left, well, you know, see if you can reach out to them, et cetera, let me know. And if not, let me know when you have new material, et cetera. I was like, all right. So I did convey um, to, uh, to, to, to Luna through friends that there was label interest. He got wind of the prosthetic interest. And he went uh, and contacted Prosthetic himself and basically pulled the other guys and, and basically convinced the guy at Prosthetic. He said, look, you know, I think it was kind of the beginning of them kind of, I think, to, to kind of divert the record interest, interest away from me because they knew all, all of a sudden it's like they kind of dismissed White Wizard is dead and figured that it was just crap and I wasn't going to keep going. Well, once they saw there was record label interest, they changed their tune <laughs> on White Wizard really quick. There was a big 180. And it was kind of like, well... There was still too much damage, I think, at that point for, for you know, Luna and I weren't going to get back together. So Luna kind of started kind of tooting the horn of like, well, you don't want to go that direction. We're really White Wizard. You know, started trying to, I think, create a little bit more of a picture of, you know, more um, that they had more to do with it. You know what I mean? I was the one that invested the money, created it, wrote the majority of the material, worked my ass off on it. But so I was a little frustrated. But in the end, I was getting, you know, that was the word I was getting was basically that, and all of a sudden, what they did was they created a new band name that was Sorcerer, which was very similar to White Wizard. And they created a MySpace and basically kind of wrote stuff to the effect that White, this was the new White Wizard. And it was just funny to me. I was like, wow, it's pretty hypocritical. You know, just a few weeks ago, you're acting like it, you know, the, you know basically 
talking like the material's not that good and that you can do a lot better and that you want nothing to do with it. But all of a sudden, when a record deal's involved, you know, a record label interest, you kind of, you know, you kind of create this new facade. So I was a little, I was a little angry, but at the same time, I just, you know, I, I was pretty passive about it. I didn't reach out to them. I never contacted Prosthetic again. I figured, you know what, they're probably just going to, you know, push for it. And I just, I figured I, I just want to really stick with what I'm doing and give it some time and get a new lineup together. I, I kind of believed in the new material I was writing. I was pumped up. Um, I'd written Over the Top and 40 Deuces and, and parts of the, the song White Wizard, and I felt like I was on to something. And I just needed to find the right guys and that were on the same page that could kind of get behind it. So I soldiered on, kept going, and, and they kind of started their whole sorcerer thing and, you know, the whole, you know, deal there with kind of being the new white wizard. And it was all of a sudden it became kind of me on my own. That, that's the, odd, the funny thing is I was this guy on my own, still believing in what I was doing, and just writing these songs with no help. I, mean, I was literally by myself at that time just trying to find the new dudes and, you know, they kind of kind of went to uh, Tyler's buddy, who was the producer, and they kind of tried to, you know, basically create a heavier thing that still could, you know, tap elements of White Wizard and, you know, kind of strike that chord and kind of use that to their advantage, but still do what they kind of wanted to do musically. So right. um, that, that's how things went for a few months. I found a couple of musicians. I went to the studio on my own dime, spent another $3,000 or so, and went to... Uh, uh, Ralph's studio in Arizona and, and, and paid, you know, the studio. I had to pay the studio time. It was expensive, but I did it. And uh, we tracked all the music. I played all the guitars and bass, um, and we, we recorded the music for the three songs that are, as you hear them now on Over the Top, um, in their final forms. It was Over the Top, 40 Deuces, and the song White Wizard. Um, all the music was, was tracked at that time. And then I went to, actually, to be honest, I actually even tried to sing at the time. I was so frustrated <laughs> I remember I tried to sing and I had the vocal melodies and lyrics written and I started on 40 deuces and my producer bless him sat me down. And he said, John, you know, you could maybe, you could maybe do this with some, with some time and some practice, but he's like, dude, you got to look for a singer. And I, I remember leaving the studio almost in tears because I was so frustrated because I couldn't find my singer. And, and those guys were kind of, you know, doing their thing. And I, I, I felt kind of, you know, it, was, it became kind of a rivalry in a way. And I, I was, I was really frustrated. I was kind of the dude on his own trying to make it happen. And um, lo and behold, you know, in, in a funny turn of events, it was kind of meant to be. I, um, my aunt, who's passed away, had had a friend um, when she was alive that she turned me on to a few years ago named Michael Nagy, and he was a, a singer from Florida, um, rock singer. And, and he had a project at the time, and we talked, it was called November 67. They were a band down in Florida that put a couple records out, kind of independent band in the late 90s, early 2000s. And... Um, I was kind of looking for that band because I figured, I'll ask Mike, maybe he knows somebody, you know, and lo and behold, there's this band called November, um, not November 67 out of Florida, and it's fronted by this guy named Wyatt Anderson, and I hear this guy singing, I'm like, who in the, f I mean, it's blowing my freaking mind, I mean, he sounds like Tate, he sounds like Halford, he sounds like, I guess this guy's one of the best singers I've ever heard in my life, I'm like, who is this kid, you know? And I just kind of reached out to him. I said, hey, you know, I, I said, oddly enough, there used to be a band November 67. You haven't heard of them anyway. You guys are called November in Florida, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, but it looked like the band wasn't doing much. And I said, are you guys still together? Because I said, look, you know, um, I've got this band. I've got these songs I'm working on. Would you be interested in checking it out? And I got this email back from Wyatt, and he's like, dude, I totally dig the material. And, yeah, actually, the band's not doing anything. And I, I offered to fly him out on my own dime. Um, and I basically flew Wyatt out. I flew him out and uh, spent some time with him. And oddly enough, as a side note to that whole story about my aunt and this, this singer, 
it was an offshoot of that band. That band, November 67, which I almost actually joined for a while, um, ended up splitting up and changing their name to November. And Wyatt was a singer that, you know, ended up in the band five years later from all these hmm. offshoots of the band splitting up and reforming. So it right. was a really kind of weird, meant-to-be coincidence that I kind of, you know, just it meant something because my, my aunt had passed away. She was really close to me, and she was the whole kind of reason I knew those guys. So it was a, it was a kind of a cool moment. And when he came out, um, you know, it just he blew my mind, man. I, I taught him over-the-top 40 Deuces and White Wizard and, and taught him my vocal melodies. He put his own spin on some stuff. And I was just like, man, this guy's incredible. And I offered him the gig right then and there. I said, dude, I said, I'll pay, I'll pay, you know, the couple thousand bucks it's going to cost to rent a car and go to the studio in Arizona right now. I still wasn't signed. And I, I'm still spending all my money out of my own pocket on this. I said, dude, I'll take you there. Let's track these three songs. I said, it's incredible. And um, basically we went to the studio. We uh, went out there with Ralph. And literally after being here for about three days, we started tracking those tunes, and those in their final form were tracked on the fly with me teaching the vocal melodies in three days. <laughs> so those songs, Over the Top 40 Deuces of White Wizard, were all recorded like that, literally right after Wyatt and I had met and I would taught him the tunes. And to go in and come out with those results, which are how you hear the songs now in their final form, um, right. with Ralph mixing them, it was pretty mind-blowing. And we knew we had kind of lightning in a bottle. It was like, wow, this is pretty fantastic. So over time... Um, Wyatt would make plans to move out. Um, Eric was, and, and as a side note to that, before Wyatt came out, right after I had finished tracking the instrumental aspects of the, the three songs, Eric Records came forward. And that's a very kind of key point in the whole story is Digby Pearson reached out to me. Well, actually, first Dan Tobin reached out for me for a thing they were doing called Heavy Metal Killers. It was a compilation. And it was a last-minute thing. They were about to put it out, and they had room for one more song, and they saw the video for High Speed GTO, again, that video, and said, dude, we want to put this song on. We think it's great. And, you know, can you send us the whole EP? And I was like, sure. And I told them, too. I said, the band split up, but if you want to hear it, great. You know, I'm, I'm the main songwriter. I'm working on new material. And um, I sent them the, uh, the EP, and Digby Pearson wrote me an email. He said, this has been on my player for a week straight. I want to sign White Wizard. Can you try and, you know, catch up things with the former dudes. And I was like, look, I've moved on, you know, but I can try. I did reach out to them. Um, and Luna got word of Eric's interest. And instead of, of course, reaching out to me and talking to me, Luna went straight to Eric. And there's a pretty interesting blog post on Eric's website, if you go there in Bigby's blog, where he talks about this. And basically, he caught Luna lying to him about a bunch of stuff. And basically, they tried to convince him again that, you know, well, no, John's not really doing White Wizard, and he's a real jerk, and you don't want to deal with him. And he, you know, just it's a real smoke and mirrors thing to kind of divert the record label interest to them. Again, this was all this whole thing was formed out of them basically trying to get record label interest away from me and to them. You know, it became right. that's what it was all about. It was a little bit of greed, really. I think at the, at the core of it. But at the end of the day, um, Digby had a lot of conversations with me, and I think. I think Luna had a manager at that point that was kind of trying to pull some stuff. Prosthetic was still in the mix. And I think they were trying to kind of create a little bidding thing, you know, between Eric and Prosthetic and kind of divert interest from me at the same time. But through conversations, luckily, Digby hadn't even heard the new material yet, those three songs. But through some meetings and conversations and through conversations with Luna, Digby pretty much came to the conclusion, I think he caught Luna in a couple of, you know, lies and stuff, which he writes about on that blog post, Digby does. And I think that at the end of the day, Digby felt like, you know, that, you know, I was the, the one to go with. So at the end of the day, 
he basically let Luna know that they were going to sign me, and Luna flipped out and continued to, you know, kind of try to pressure Eric to go their direction. And in the end, oddly enough, um, Eric started sending me contracts while I was recording with Wyatt. So it was kind of in <laughs> conjunction to recording those three songs. And I think they got a pleasant surprise because Eric made a commitment to me, though we hadn't finalized the contract yet. I had to have, you know, the typical hire an entertainment attorney to go through it and change some things, et cetera. But Eric basically committed to me, and that's why White Wizard is just me that's signed to the band or signed to the label, because basically at the time I was the band. You know, I didn't even really have a band at the time. So basically Digby committed to sign me, and he believed in me through our conversations and, and, and through everything else. And then I delivered him the three songs. <laughs> so I think they were pleasantly surprised when they got those and they heard Wyatt's vocals. Um, while we were finalizing the deal, they got those songs, and um, so that was it. And then basically from there... Um, I think that, uh, you know, once I was signed, which was odd, all of a sudden um, I started getting emails basically from LaRue and those guys. Like, LaRue had spent like a couple of grand when the band was first forming, and Tyler spent like 800 bucks on the recordings. And all right. of a sudden they're like, well, you need to pay us back. And I was like, well, <laughs> wait a second. You know, for starters, I'm about 10 grand into this thing, um, and I need to get paid back first. And, you know, we need to discuss this. And that's the essence of the beef. The odd thing to me, Luna never spent a dime. Those guys spent, you know, like I said, Larry spent a couple grand and, and Tyler spent like 800 bucks. They feel like somehow once I got signed and they lost out on that deal with Eric or just that I got signed with White Wizard in general because they were a part of it, that they should get paid back instantly for any investments they had, even though they left it for dead, tried to take two, you know, two record deals from me. And I spent, you know, thousands of dollars, um, you know, keeping it going. And I was all for sitting down and, and, one thing that I want to correct is Luna on your program said that he that he had never been contacted to uh, talk about splits and shares. That is the biggest lie of all time. I emailed him so many times and got so many smoke and mirrors responses. I said, dude, I can let bygones be bygones. Let's sit down. But I said, I didn't think 25% H was fair because I felt, you know, and what's funny is, is all there is to argue over is debt anyway. I've never received a royalty <laughs> check for GTO. You know, all there is is debt right now. I even sent Luna a text after I heard your radio show when he was on it. And I said, hey, man, I said, you guys want 25%? Fine. Will you take on the debt? And, of course, I don't hear anything back. Um, but the bottom line is that I said, I'll show you my royalty statements. Whatever you want to do, but understand that it's only debt right now. And you know, I've, I've got thousands in this thing, man. You didn't spend a dime. It's like, I know you had some creative input in the EP, but dude, like, you know, to walk around and tell people I've ripped you off uh, is just the most audacious and ridiculous statement there is. And it, it does, yeah, I think it's formed a little bit, you know, the whole rivalry thing. I think that once Eric signed us, Prosthetic obviously and them worked out a deal. And they ended up going with Prosthetic. I think someone had the name Sorcerer, so they changed their name to Holy Grail. And they started moving forward, and they did their demo, which was really good. I thought it was fantastic. It was heavier, but it was cool. And um, they put their stuff out. But then I think it kind of became a, a press thing for the label and their management. I think they were like, well, let's wait till Eric puts out High Speed GTO. You guys' faces are on it, you know. Um, we'll ride that horse, and then we'll basically kind of, you know, you know, we'll, we'll continue to kind of push this whole thing. And I also think that, you know, in the process of trying to get label interest their way, those guys kind of created a certain image of me. And I think at that point they had to continue to go with it. You know, it was like, well, you can't do a 180 on that now. So, you know, why not ride the horse out? And I think that overall everyone thought it would be beneficial to kind of continue to push the, you know, 
you know, John Leon's a monster, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, I don't know. It's absolute absurdity. I kind of just laugh when I read some of this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's funny. It's, it's almost a 180 from what really is the truth. But I just looked at it. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep moving on. I, you know, at that point, I felt blessed to be with Eric Records. I was so excited that they, you know, they believed in us. And um, I continued to write. And High Speed GTO was obviously put out. Um, and, you know, obviously... It was put out about a year after we split up, so it was old news to me, really. It was kind of like, wow, now this is being all rekindled, and you know, now all of a sudden all this stuff's being said, et cetera. And it was kind of an odd circumstance, but at the time, like I said, my PR people at the label were like, oh, it's good for PR, don't worry about it. And, you know, you know, rivalry stuff's always great for that. And you know, before you know it, people were comparing it to Megadeth and Metallica, and I'm like, this is just insane. <laughs> you know, <what> I'm <laughs> like, John Leon's the next Dave Mustaine. Are you kidding me? But you know, it's one of those things when you when you when you read that stuff, you just gotta kinda take it with a grain of salt and just laugh and go, you know what? They have their motivations, they did what they did. And it kind of ended up where, you know, they kept smoking mirrors, kind of a weird thing when I was emailing talking about percentages and the talks just kinda broke off and then we start hearing from their attorney and they're starting to try to extort our website. At the time when we were together, um, LaRue was the internet tech savvy dude. And like I let him do everything internet because he's Lure is like a genius when it comes to computers. It's like unbelievable. So I'd be like, you know, you do the website stuff, you handle that, I'll handle this stuff, creative stuff, et cetera. You know, we all had kind of our roles at the beginning. So Lure had bought the dot com, and I never even thought about it, man. To be honest, until after we were signed, like we'd just been using the MySpace so long, um, I never even thought about whitewizard.com. Well, then one day it pops up and Holy Grail's emblems, on. You know, someone pointed it out to me. They're like, dude, you know, Holy Grail's, and I'm like, what, really? And then all of a sudden their attorneys are basically like, well, LaRue and, and Tyler want to be paid back the money they invested in White Wizard, and until they get paid back and they all get 25% each of any royalties you receive on paper from GTO, you're not getting your website back. And I just was like, are you kidding me? And I just responded to the attorney. I said, you know what? So them to F off, everybody. I don't care about the, uh, the dot-com. And I said, when I get my money paid back from what I've invested, um, we can sit down and talk about it. But I said, look, man, these guys walked away from it. They left it for dead. I paid thousands to keep it going. I invested by far the most in the beginning. And I just I just thought it was really like weird. I was just like, man, come on. It's not even that much money. And really, it's like, why are you doing this? I mean, and I think it's more just to justify keeping the website and keeping the whole thing going. I mean, I don't even know. And sometimes I wonder even at this point if, if Luna wants to keep it going. I tend to wonder if the label and the management just, you know, want to keep riding the horse out. I mean, I, I would hope at some point we can all sit down and laugh about this and figure something out that makes everybody happy. I mean, one thing I can assure you is I never started a band to rip anybody off or, or do anything. I mean, but create music. It's just unfortunate circumstances that happen. And really, in essence, they're the ones that got pretty aggressive and greedy after the fact. And it is what it is. I think looking back on it now, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a little unfortunate that we all split up only because I think that um, I think that original unit was something special. I think had we been able to get past our creative differences, we also didn't have a manager, which you know that's part of the reason we split up too. You've got to have a manager when you've got that many different headstrong guys in the band together. When it starts to do something like that, or um, you know bad things happen, and we didn't have anybody to manage all the different things that were going on. And, you know, I, I look back and it's a great time. And, and what I what I told them in the end is I, I've told them several times in emails. I've said you know. Why don't, why don't you guys just be happy? We both got record deals out of this. I mean, at the end of the day, I started the band. I wrote three songs in my living room, called you guys together. And, dude, we got two record deals out of it. We both have pretty cool bands now. 
Um, and we've got a fan base building and we've got the opportunity to do something cool. It's like, why, why even, you know, why are you still kind of, you know, pushing this so hard and, and what's the deal, you know? And it's oddly enough, it's funny when I heard LaRue on your show after Luna, um, two things that didn't shock me at all were number one, how Holy Grail had about, you know, five different producers come and go, you know, after the experience (laughs) with Tyler and Luna with the mixing, I was like, you know what I mean? I went through that same thing. They're really hard to please. So I was like, well, that's no shock. And it also didn't shock me LaRue bailed because LaRue's not a big fan of confrontation and he's, he's kind of an introverted type of dude. And, and that's how he was with Light Wizard. He just didn't want to deal with the confrontation and kind of always, you know, put his head in the sand and kind of stay out of the arguments. And uh, in the end, when we were splitting up, actually, at the time, LaRue was talking about quitting music altogether. I think Prosthetics' interest in Luna kind of, kind of got him to get back involved in it. So all of those things didn't surprise me and they really kind of came full circle. So when I listened to that, I was like, well, you know, everything kind of that goes around comes around and kind of, you know, it's not shocking to me that's the way it ended up going down. And, you know, they've had plenty of lineup changes too. I mean, they're, they're not the easiest dude. They're also very headstrong in their, their ideas. And that's not to say anyone's right or wrong. I'm headstrong. They are. Um, and we've all gone through some lineup changes, you know, and I think they've, you know, gone through just as many as us to be quite fair. I mean, they've gone through a lot over the last year. Um, and, uh, I've met some guys that, that went on the road with them and stuff and, and, you know, I mean, every band has its, its you know, its good and bad points, and every person does. And it's, it's like I said, it's a marriage of four or five guys. It's very difficult. Some bands are lucky, like Rush and Aerosmith. They come together, and it always just works, you know. And they, they all have a certain way they get along and, and, and communicate, and they can do it together for 30 years. But how many bands don't? Look at Pink Floyd. Gilmore and Waters could make millions <laughs> of dollars. They don't even want to look at each other. That's right. how deep these things can get. You know, it can get really deep. There's a lot of fragile egos involved. Art- artists can be, you know, we're all pretty, you know, we're all pretty stubborn. And I think that, you know, it, none of the guys are bad guys. The thing is, is Luna Tyler and LaRue, I think they're all good guys at the heart. And so am I. It's just those kind of things happen sometimes. And, and, and at the end of the day, like, like I said, man, hopefully one day we'll all be able to just joke about it and get over it and move on. And I think it is overblown to a certain extent. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's definitely some, some personal things that we have to argue through. And I'm definitely still pretty upset about the way they handled things after um, we split up with record deals and stuff like that. And I feel they, they went too far in some regards. And, but other than that, man, it's like, you know, as far as any personal differences, why we split up in the, in the beginning, who cares, you know? And, um, you know, that's pretty much the story of, of that. I know it's a, a long story. I try to keep it as short as possible, but to really give you, if you really want to know exactly what happened, that's the hundred percent exact way it went down. Um, I've got a good memory and it's, it's, it's been a very, very s- strong, um, learning experience for you the last three years, both with how to keep a band together, how to deal with different personalities and, um, all of those things. I and mean, just to touch briefly on the other guys, as far as any other lineup, changes that have happened you know Mach 2 came together we went out and um you know Wyatt came out and the big really Eric was was the only guy that I really had a huge issue with um ever in the band that I that I still do to this day I mean I think when Eric came in he was in Detroit he was in a band called Overloaded he sent me some demos um I was impressed with his playing and I, I still will say Eric's a fantastic guitar player um he uh he came out, auditioned, I was impressed with his playing, and he was going to th- thinking about moving out to L.A. anyway, I think, and he really liked White Wizard from hearing the stuff online as well. And I was like, well, dude, you know what, if you want to join the band, I think you know, the whole band was impressed with his playing, and I brought him out. And things didn't start out on a good turn with Eric and I. When, when Eric moved out, 
I had an apartment that I owned a lease on. I, I'd been leasing for, for about four years, and I'd moved out of it about a year before that and moved to a different location, and I was subleasing the place. I always wanted to keep it because it was close to Hollywood, you know? And right. in case I needed to get, you know, in case I needed to get, you know, back close to the studio, I kind of I kind of moved out to the hills for a while to escape. It was kind of one of those things, too. I needed some time away to kind of refocus and um, get out of my place. You know, I'd just been through a lot of stress the last couple of years. So I, I subleased it to some, some, some girls that were living there. And when Eric and Wyatt were both moving out, they were, Wyatt had gone back to Florida and was getting ready to come out. And then Eric came out subsequently after I'd recorded those three songs with Wyatt, you know, and those were done. And, and so it was kind of like that was the timing of it. And then Wyatt was moving out, and so was Eric. And so that apartment, I was like, you know what? I called Eric and Wyatt, and I said, look, I've got this apartment. I, you know, the deal is i got to give these girls 30 days' notice. We had kind of a month-to-month thing going. And I said, I'll give them notice. You guys want to take this place over. I said, I'll pay part of the rent there and stay there with you guys two, three nights a week, and we can write to help, you know, keep your costs down. At the time, I was still working a day job and making enough money to do that. And I said, also, what I'll do is I will um, – I won't, obviously you won't have to give me a deposit. So it's easy for you guys. It's a lot easier than having to go find an apartment, you know, and, um, and it's also two blocks in the studio. So this is great. I knew Wyatt was coming out. He was pretty broke. Eric had some money, but, but Wyatt wasn't doing really well. So it was perfect for Wyatt. He'd have a place to stay right away. We could create together. I could start teaching them more of the new songs. We could write together. I just thought it'd be great. You know, and they're like, yeah, it sounds great. Of course, Wyatt was on board and Eric said he was cool. So I gave the girls notice and, Basically, when Eric got out, it was about, let's say, two weeks before the first of the month, and, you know, they were going to come in on the first once the girls moved out. I was, you know, they had, I had to give them 30 days' notice. And I told Eric, I said, um, I brought him to the place and just reconfirmed with him. You want to do this, right? Yeah, it's all cool. So I continued to let them move out. Well, the first comes and goes, and I'm not hearing from Eric. I'm trying to get a hold of him. And then I get word from, from Wyatt and Chad, Eric found a place in Hollywood and decided he doesn't want to move into your place. And I was like, dude, you understand that, like, I've given people notice. It's past, you know, it's like the second at this point. Eric wasn't calling me back for two days. And I'm like, what's going on, you know? And um, he, it was just amazing to me that he never even bothered to call me. It's one thing if he decided he didn't want to do it, but you can't make a commitment to somebody, shake their hand, you know, and then just on a whim decide you want to do things differently and not even communicate to them about it and leave them dead. So basically, I, I had rent due. It was like the second. The girls were out. And in the end, I lost my place. I lost that apartment. Um, even though I had a place to live at the time, it was still, you know, something that I'd had for like four years, and I hated losing the lease on it, but I couldn't find anyone in time to uh, take over the place. And there was a big argument right away with him. I sat down with him and the entire band, and, uh, you know, we compromised. He agreed to pay me a couple hundred dollars, but he didn't pay me much. I lost far more money um, just on the, you know, the process of, of, of everything happening and whatnot. And um, that was it. You know, I lost my place, um, and it was uh, it was a frustrating experience. And it kind of made me, you know, of course, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of people have asked me, why didn't you fire him right then? And I was like, well, because he just moved from Detroit, and he was a good guitar player. And, you know, it was one of those things I just wanted the band to succeed, so I kind of just was like, fine, whatever. He decided he didn't want to move there. He handled it terribly. Um, and very disrespectfully, but I was like, you know what, whatever, you know, and, and looking back, I probably should have made a move right then, but I didn't. And over time, it, really after that, there was just never, you know, there was always a little bit of tension between him and I, and I think that never really recovered. And over time, the big problem though with Eric was just he, when I, when I was younger, I was around a lot of very, I don't mind partying and I don't mind alcohol, but I don't like people that can 
to control their alcohol to the point where they start blacking out and doing really stupid stuff, you know? Um, okay. Doing stuff to the point where you're like, you know, like, you know, just really unpredictable and weird and talking to themselves and just, you know, just really, and, and Eric was is the classic type of dude like that. I mean, he just really was having all these moments. We'd, we'd drink with him, we'd go do shows, and by the end of the night, he's blacking out, he's talking to people that aren't there, he's, you know, just being really, really obnoxious and crazy, and the rest of us, I think, especially myself, were starting to kind of be really uncomfortable with that. We, we tried to look past it for a long time until we got on the road, until we went on a real tour. And we went out with a band, and basically we had a lot of incidents, and I won't go into personal detail of what they were, but they weren't cool. And the tour manager wanted to, to kick us off the tour. He didn't, like, didn't even let Eric near the headliner's tour bus about halfway through the tour. Um, and just a lot of, he was a lot of pickup the wrong way. He almost caused us to get kicked off the tour, and he was just really acting up a lot. When the rider would come, he just would start drinking constantly. Um, it wouldn't stop all night. It was just your classic, you know, I mean, the guy's got a, you know, he's got a pretty heavy drinking problem. Great guitar player. Um, you know, we just had some other issues. There was issues with, you know, his ear. He would, you know, just have the monitors turned way up too loud. He, you know, he just, a lot of things, just little things like that. You know, there would be a lot of creative things that we weren't on the same page with either, you know, and, and just art, you know, performance things and a lot of different issues. And, at the end of that tour, I was pretty much ready to move on from Eric, but all the guys, the label was, was concerned because we'd gone and recorded the six other songs, we'd done all the photos, and the label was like, we've got an album dropping, can you at least keep Eric on board until the end of the album cycle? You know, because what, what they hated was, is, I mean, you have to admit, I was in a quandary. I had, they'd released High Speed GTO in the summer. They'd, you know, obviously, there was the whole, you know, kind of BS being manifested with the whole thing with the ex-members, and they're like, the last thing you need, John, is a fired member, you know, from the <laughs> PR standpoint. You know, everyone was concerned about that. So right. I reluctantly agreed to keep him on board, and we went over to Europe to tour with Ed Guy. And when we went to Europe, the incidents kind of continued, but it came to a head. We, we were lucky enough when the Over the Top album had just been dropped in England when we went over there for Ed Guy. And... The, the buzz was good. There was a big buzz, and um, Screen Promotions uh, took us on, which I think they do Iron Maiden stuff over there, and, you know, they brought us on some really killer radio shows, and one of the things they set up at the end of that tour was to uh, be on the BBC with Bruce Dickinson, right. Iron Maiden singer. It's like, come on, you know, are you kidding me? Two years ago, I formed this thing in my living room, you know, I'm, it, it, was, it was incredible. It was, to me, it was the most important moment in my life as an artist, to go and be interviewed by Bruce Dickinson on the BBC, all right? Huge frickin' deal, especially for a guy that air-based Iron Maiden, you know, when he was 10 years old. It's <laughs> kind of like Sam Dunn said when he did that, you know, uh, that Headbangers Journey movie when he interviewed Bruce on the stage of the Hammersmith Odeon, and he was like, if I could talk to the 12-year-old Sam right now, you know, it's like, it was like one of those moments, you know, it was like, wow, you know, I can't believe this is happening. Um, dream come true. And the night before, Eric went MIA, nowhere to be found, disappeared as would happen from time to time. And um, the next day, we were, the, we were scheduled for the interview at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And he showed up at 3 o'clock at the label, drunk as a skunk, like reeking like booze, slurring his words, barely standing, <laughs> um, hadn't showered. And we're on our way to the BBC to go meet Bruce Dickinson. And, and that was kind of my snap point with Eric. I was like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, this is the biggest moment in my life, and this guy is just completely pissing all over it as far as I was concerned. And even Chad, other guitar player, who's normally a reserved dude, even snapped at him and was just, like, really pissed. And 
everyone's like, dude, go to the hotel and pass out. And he fought with us for like a half hour, drunk, slurring his words. Oh, I want to be first It was just pathetic. And um, the girl from our label finally had to walk him to his hotel room and say, no, dude, you can't go. So we had to go as four of us. And uh, we did the interview. It was still a fantastic experience. But, um, you know, we, we just went back and the whole band had a talk. And I was like, dude, I, I got to reassess this whole situation with Eric. And, you know, I'll just deal with it when I get back. And we went back out that night. He never passed out. He went and did a bunch more stupid shit that night and pissed some more people off in the scene. And we just were like, wow. And I didn't know how to handle it. I went back to, to L.A. I just needed a week or two to kind of decompress from it. Because even though I just met Bruce Dickinson and was on a high, um, it just wasn't working out. And at the time, Wyatt was getting disillusioned, I think, with everything, just because things weren't working out, you know, with Eric. Um, and Wyatt at the time had really become depressed, missing home. He didn't really dig L.A. Um, he'd had a hard time with some health stuff. I think he was just having a real kind of life moment at that time. And I think he needed to get away from it for a bit. So we came back, even though we just met Bruce Dickinson, and had all this momentum going, and the record had all this buzz. And it was such a bummer because we came back and Wyatt wasn't sure what he wanted to do. He was in a weird place, you know, in his head. And, and, and I had to let Eric go. And, and I really hadn't even made the decision to let Eric go. I emailed him and I was like, dude, like, uh, you know, what you did wasn't cool. And, and the thing that I really had the biggest problem with was he never apologized. He never would apologize to me. He had a very kind of sense of entitlement, holier-than-thou attitude that he could act however he wanted to act. You know, he wanted... He wanted to just be who he wanted to be, and, and he didn't care that it was my band. And for me, it was like I thought back all the work I'd done, you know, being to the point of tears at the studio, thousands of dollars invested, and this guy's just kind of coming in and just kind of, you know, disrespecting everything that I'm trying to do. And and I just was like, you know what? No, this isn't cool. And and I kind of emailed him, and and he emailed back. I'll never forget his email. It was like, fuck you. You know, you got to meet your hero, Bruce Dickinson. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to act how I want to act. You can't tell me what to do and, you know, stop trying. You know, it was just like one of those things. And it, it just, that's when I fired him. I was like, dude, you know what? You just, you're so unapologetic. You're so, there's just no humbleness or apology or anything. Like he just didn't respect me. He didn't care. And I've worked too hard, man, to have a guy like that in my band. And I was never happy. I mean, I'd be in the same room with the guy. He just threw things of energy at me. And he, there was another thing that happened where after the tour, he knew that he was kind of on the edge of being fired and, he was trying to kind of pull band members his way and kind of, you know, kind of spin the whole, you know, just, he was just getting ridiculous. You know, he just was feeling paranoid. He was getting let go. And I think trying to Giovanni, our current drummer, um, he pulled Giovanni aside and was trying to convince him that he, you know, that, uh, that he was, you know, he liked, he basically would say I was a shitty guitar player. He was like, John sucks on guitar and his demos were crap. And I'm the reason over the top so great. And, and just stuff like that. And Giovanni was like, well, let me hear the demos he sent you. And he sent Gio the demos. And Gio's like, dude, like, these are the songs. It's all written. And, and Eric's like, well, I played it better. And he's like, well, yeah, because you're the guitar player, you know. He's the bass player. That's why he, you know, plays bass. And, you know, but, but he wrote it all, you know. And, and he's just real delusional and crazy like that. And it just got to a point where I think even Giovanni and everyone was like, man, yeah, this just, you know, as much as everybody wanted to, you know, felt bad for him. Everyone knew he kind of had a problem with the booze and, you know, the, you know, it, the Corey's a good guitar player, but at the end, it was just too much uh, stress. And unfortunately, Wyatt walked away at the same time. So all of a sudden, we had a press nightmare on our hands because we're like, oh, shit, you know, what do we do now? Now, you know, Eric had to go. He's the one guy, I'll say, ever in White Wizard, you know, that, that you know, had to go for extremely important reasons like that. It was no question, you know. I think the whole band would agree with that at this point now, even though they... They tried to fight for him, and they're really going because they thought he could get it together with the booze. But 
in the end, you know, I think everyone agreed with that move. But at that point, we got offered download. So it was a really <laughs> ironic moment. It was like we just did Bruce Dickinson. Our bookers in Europe call us up and they say, hey, uh, you know, you've been offered download. I think you should take it. And I'm like, well, uh, okay. Uh, the label's like, well, don't, don't say anything and just try to find guys. And so that's when uh, we obviously had to find a lead guitar player, and that's when we found Lewis. Um, we needed to find a permanent replacement there. We weren't sure what was going to happen with Wyatt. Wyatt at the time wasn't ready. I think he, he was just kind of going through his thing. And So at that point, we needed just a replacement singer to come do download. We weren't sure if it would last, and that's when we call, got a hold of Mikey uh, Grimio from Celador. His right. band had split up. He was in Nebraska. Our manager knew some people that knew him. I know that we had talked. We talked to the guy that sang for Anthrax for a while. Um, I forget his name. Uh, the guy that was there for a couple of years um, before Joey came back, I think, or maybe before John came back for a bit. Um, uh, Dan I, Nelson? Or... Yeah, I think it was him, yeah. Anyway, our, our manager knew him, and I talked to him a bit. I talked to a few people. I know my manager reached out to Ripper Owens, but he had something else going on and he couldn't make it or something, but said thanks. And um, in the end, Mikey was the guy that made the most sense. You know, it was kind of just, we really looked at it as just a one-off until we could figure out what we were going to do permanently. And Mikey, you know, and I talked, and it would never really etched in stone if Mike was going to join the band permanently, but I think the label got kind of pumped up in some PR photos. The label <laughs> loves to announce whenever we do. It's funny, Holy Grail does it very different. Prosthetic never announces when they have a lineup change. <laughs> but for some reason, our label loves to announce it when we have a lineup change. So right. two very different schools of thought. But in the end, of course, they kind of made a you know a big PR announcement about that whole thing. We did download, and it went pretty well. You know, I, Mikey was a cool dude, and um, he was excited. I know Larue mentioned on your radio show. He's like, "Oh, I talked to Mikey, and he was excited to download." And two months later, he was gone. See, John Leon, blah blah blah. No, that's not how it happened. Actually, Mikey came and did the the, the show. He was excited. But he went back to Nebraska, and we didn't even really know at the time. We kind of found that after the fact that he's got two kids. Um, he has a lot of commitments, family, et cetera, in Nebraska. And in the end, Mikey didn't handle it that well. He really didn't give us an answer for two months, and we kind of booked the studio to do a new song, and we were getting ready for him. He was supposedly moving out. And then right when he was supposed to fly in, like the day I actually didn't show up, and then he contacted me like a day later and was like, dude, I... I really can't move out there. I need, I need more money. He basically said, I need to be getting paid to do this. And I was like, well, dude, <laughs> thanks for letting me know two months later, but uh, I can't pay you to do it, man. And the record label, you know, it's just one of those things where he changed his mind. And he, didn't, I mean, he texted me later and apologized and said he didn't handle it well. And it's all cool. And I got no ill will towards the guy. But basically, when he didn't show up, I remember Lewis and Gio and I. Gio was really mad. He was just cussing Italian, you know. Oh, he was so pissed. And I was like, look, guys, just, you know, we got to stay focused. Bottom line is we got to find a singer. And it was thought about to reach out to Wyatt at the time, but we thought, well, let's see what's out there first. And, you know, we, there was still, you know, everyone was a little gun shy of Wyatt because he kind of walked away. So everyone was kind of like, well, let's see what's up first, you know. And we, uh, we found Peter. And, and Peter came out. He flew out. was a great guy. And, and the thing I loved about Peter, as you found out from your interview, I liked who he was as a person. And one thing I've learned over the last three years of doing this is – more than anything, if I'm going to do this and be broke, I better have guys around me I really like. You know, right. you you got to have guys you really love, almost that you love, that you really want them to succeed, they want you to succeed. You've got their back, and there's mutual respect. And the thing about Peter was I respected him. 
I liked him. He was a good soul. And it's hard to find guys like that in heavy metal sometimes. You know, I hate to say this, but a lot of angry right. dudes. And Peter just wasn't like that. You know, he was he was genuine. He was sincere. And he was, above all, just a nice guy. He didn't have any chips on his shoulder. He wasn't exercising any demons, you know. And that that's what I needed. I, and, and that's what I had with Giovanni and I had with Lewis and, and with Chad. And so I felt like he was a good fit. And he was, from a personality standpoint, Peter was an absolute doll. He was unbelievable. Like, I love the guy. He's, he's, he's uh, Mutual feelings between him and I both. I think he's a great guy. I right. think what happened is, you know, we went in, we did that shooting star single. Um, I wrote the song. I actually, I'd written that music for that song when I wrote the, uh, the pop songs, but I didn't include it on the record because I thought it was just a little bit too different from the songs. And I thought those nine songs were good. You know, like that was just a good short but sweet statement. That album was just working like that. But um, right. I, at the time, I hadn't written the lyrics yet. And when Ronnie died, you know, I you look, the whole thing with Dio, man, was as a kid, man. I mean, I was—he's such an influence on me as a lyricist, and such an influence on me as a human being, and and and, and such a, like such a person that I, you know, kind of inspire to to follow in the footsteps of how you should act as a person and and and, and treat people, and and how you should also, you know, treat music. He was just such a monster musician and, and such an amazingly talented guy. And he was just a light, man. He was a rainbow. He was a light. As far as I was concerned, he was one of the people that I, I held in the highest regards as an artist, as a fan. And I did all that. You know, it was, I, I made sure that the label donated every dime they made to his charity. I said, I don't want anyone, you guys, because we don't make any money. So I'm like, I don't want the label making any money. You guys are donating this to Children of the Night or one of his charities. And um, I said, you know, I'd like to cover a deal song too. And it was just really done more as just a, a fan appreciation thing for me it was just my little way. It was kind of, I guess it was just my own self little way of saying goodbye to Dio in my own way. And it definitely wasn't, you know, I know how it could be. I, I heard you mention something once. I, I, I could see how it could be contrived by some people as being um, some kind of like PR thing. But right. I mean, that's, I, I, I think that's really, really off the mark. I think that for one, we're not making any money doing this. I don't think we will be anytime soon. I don't think there's a big enough fan base out there to cast a net to for this to have any advantageous thing for us as a band. So even though I could see how people may jump to conclusions and think something like that, at the core, man, all that is is a very genuine, you know, heart in the right place, farewell to deal. And I wrote the lyrics on the plane as well, coming from download along with all the other lyrics I sent to write last year. And um, I just I just felt like I wanted to put it out, man. And it was one of the things I just kind of mentioned it to Talita, our, our PR girl, and um, right. she knows Wendy Dio a little bit. And I was just like, you know, you know, why don't we do this? It's just kind of a tribute. You know, I just really wanted to say farewell. I'd written some words that we got to post online as well. And I, I was just really, I went through a lot of emotions. I went to the, you know, the, the, the funeral slash, um, you know, public memorial in Los Angeles. Um, I, I just, it was a real emotional weekend for me. I remember one of the coolest things though, was we, me and Chad and, 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 and Giovanni and Lewis, I believe some of, some of the guys, I think Michael too, Grimio had just flown in or maybe he hadn't, I think he was flown in the next day. But anyway, some of the guys from white wizard, we went into the rainbow to have dinner the night before the public memorial. And it turns out it was the night of the, uh, the, uh, the actual funeral. You know, of course that wasn't for the public. Right. That was just family and friends. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we went in the rainbow and got a table and next to us was, uh, Heaven and Hell and Eddie Trunk. <laughs> and, oh, no and, kidding. Yeah, Chad and I almost, I mean, we just froze in our seats. I and mean, we didn't, you know, of course, and fucking Geezer Butler sitting next to me. What am I going to do? You know what I mean? That's, <laughs> there's not many people I could be sitting next to and just kind of, you know, lose my, uh, lose my train of thought and freeze up. But 
it was really cool. But actually, you know, we didn't talk to the guys in heaven and hell. They kind of left. But then Eddie Trunk came up and talked to us. It was really cool. And he uh, he said some nice things about the record. And we talked about UFO a bit because we're both UFO fans. And um, right. he, he actually emceed, he emceed Dio's, uh, Dio's memorial the next day and did a fantastic job. Um, and it was it was just a really emotional weekend for me. So that was kind of my my little thing is I wanted to put that out. And we did it. And um, I'm happy with it. I don't think the fans were very happy with Peter's voice. Um, some people were, but I think a lot of people were starting to say, look, you know, this this isn't the white wizard I've gotten used to. Um, you know, Peter, Peter, you know, of course, emulates Bruce Dickinson a lot. He's got a lot of vibrato in his voice. And, um, you know, he, I mean, I love Peter to death, but I mean, just from an artistic standpoint, Wyatt is, you know, a vastly more dynamic range of a singer than Peter does. Peter's a little more limited, at least with what he could do with that material at the time. I think Peter's a better singer than he can than he was able to convey on Shooting Star, but there was right. a short amount of time to, to 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 get him ready on it. I brought him in the studio. I'm teaching him lines in the studio. My producer's throwing stuff at him, and he did the best he could with the time he had to work with. But Wyatt's performance on Over the Top is so freaking good. It was a a really big. It was a kind of a one-two punch of a song that was different. It was a little bit more hooky and kind of early Def Leppard kind of you know kind of just a chill kind of cool in the pocket tune. Um, right. It was melodic, but it wasn't as, as, as bombastic as all the songs in Over the Top. So you had a kind of a mellower tune that was a little bit more crossover friendly, maybe a little more hooky, with a guy singing it that just the performance wasn't up to snuff with what, of course, Wyatt had done on Over the Top. Um, you know, I think based on a lot of different circumstances. But the bottom line is I think that even though a lot of people dug the tune, and I still think it's a great song at the core, I love the song, I think a lot of the fans, you know, weren't... Um, not everybody, but a lot of them were definitely, you know, the reviews weren't all um, very positive, and a lot of people were like, oh, White Wizard's done, et cetera. Now, that had nothing to do with our decision with Peter. I still was going to stand by Peter because I felt he was a better singer than that. I felt like when we got a chance to do the full-length record um, that we'd get a chance to expand and grow and do better. And that was a big part of it, though, with me wanting Peter to work with our producer and me needing him here to write to work on the song and really spend time teaching and working on them with him because I wanted, because I knew it was going to take work to, to get a performance that, that the fans would, you know, be able to hang their hat on and move on from Wyatt with and be cool. And I wanted, I wanted Peter to do the best he could do. And when his visa stuff went down, it was obvious that we weren't going to have that time to do that. And I think it would have sold him short. I think it would have sold the record short. And in the end, it worked out best for everybody because Wyatt, you know, is the voice of White Wizard. He's back, and now Peter's having the time to develop his band and be there with his family and his mom. So in the end, karmically, it all kind of came together for the right reasons. And, you know, the relationship with Wyatt's very strong now. We're all on the same page, and we know exactly what we want to do. And I uh, hope Peter's very successful with his project, and I hope we both get to tour together in the future and uh, hope we get to toast some wine one day to some success, you know, and that's really where it's at. Cool. Um, I, it's cool that you, uh, mentioned, uh, my Dio comments and fair enough with, with what you said. Um, I can understand a hundred percent where you're coming from. And, um, I, I think, it, again, I think it's cool that you brought that up and that you addressed it and that there were no, uh, punches pulled there. Um, and what you said about Peter, I think is a hundred percent percent accurate the the first time that i heard him sing outside of white wizard um my impression was exactly what you said where i don't think it's a fair representation of his voice but at the same time 
why it is just so, you know, pardon the pun here, so over the top with the album over the top that, you know, he's one of the, uh, you know, shining points there. So I could understand exactly why, you know, um, you went back to, uh, or you guys went back to, to him being in the band. And again, you know, um, so many fans wanted it and, uh, possibly I think the biggest thing for Peter and I mentioned this to him, uh, was the videos of him playing live. And, um, he, he chalked that all up to being out with his friends all night and showing up to the, uh, I think he said the Hammersmith in London and, uh, and just having his, um, his voice shot. But, um, you know, it, I tr- truly hope that you guys do um, connect on some tour in the future. And, uh, you know, hopefully we do see more from him. And um, as far as Shooting Star is concerned, uh, is that going to be on Flying Tigers with Wyatt on it? Or is that just something that was done with Peter and you guys aren't going to revisit that? Uh, for now, it's not being put out. I mean, we had I had 12 songs pretty much, you know, etched in stone for flying tigers and we went with those i think with the time that we had involved especially when you're doing 12 songs and you know you only have so much time to do it i think it just made sense to kind of not go there and, and yeah i think that at least for now um you know that's that's something that peter you know in, in defense of peter again i mean there's also that song if you notice there's not a lot of times to uh you know catch your breath in between it's pretty much it's a lot of constant singing yeah. Um, if you listen to the way that that song is sung. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I think he did the best with what he could do. And I, I still like it. I mean, I, I think it's a good yeah. song. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, why it's a one-off man. And he's, I'll tell you right now, his performance on this record is going to establish him as being one of the greats. I mean, he's as good as his performance was on over the top. It's even better. It's, it's a vast improvement on this record. Um, him and my producer both work fantastic together and, and he really put his heart into really, having a strong comeback on this album. And, and I think that, uh, I think why it is as good as a lot of the greats. I think he just, you know, the one thing that we all need to improve on and we'll be the first to say is we need to get out there and put a consistent string of tours together so we can improve our live performance. You know, we're still as a band, you know, especially with, you know, with Wyatt, you know, that's one thing with Wyatt is, you know, I kind of tapped him out of being more of a guy that was just singing in cover band. He's a diamond in the rough, you know, and right. he, uh, he, he'll be the first to admit he needs to get out there and get experience, comfortable on stage. Um, he's never going to be a run around, go crazy guy like Bruce Dickinson, but he, we all need to improve the element of the live show. And the only way that's going to come is with constant touring and getting out there and, you know, continuing to progress the band. So we, we know that's what we need to do. And, and, you know, I'm really proud of the new record. I, I, I kind of held back, you know, on, on the over-the-top record, I played about four leads on that record, like the whole lead on 40 Deuces and um, the first and third leads on the song Over the Top and the first lead on the song White Wizard. And I kind of, you know, carry on in that tradition to where I'm more of a serve-the-song-with-feel kind of lead player. I'm not going to be technically blowing anyone's mind. But um, I'm really happy with even the way the leads turned out. I think the songs just turned out great, and the material is very shredding. And Giovanni did a hell of a job on the drums. Um and it just, it's got a certain flow to it. And I think it's going to be really, it's going to be really interesting to, to get it out there and, and, and kind of expand the band's sound and, and continue to grow and 
you know, I mean, we're the sum of our influences on our early material. I mean, even Rush, their first two albums were just like Canadian Zeppelin. I mean, over time, they, <laughs> right. they, they found their sound, and I think we will, too. I think, you know, there's definitely the, the line that Neil Peart says in the Rush documentary sums it up. He says the words that uh, that doesn't suit Rush have never been uttered, and I, I would say the same for us. I think that over time, we're, we're not afraid to experiment and, and go in some different areas. Shooting Star is a prime example. I mean, it was... It was a little bit of a left a left turn, even just from the musical element, from what everyone was used to. Um, but it's still at the core has the same, I think, heart. And, and everything, one thing I'll say about White Wizard that I'm most proud of and, and just the writing that I do in general is it's not contrived. I don't, I'm not, everything that I write is what goes to tape. I mean, it's like, it's completely 100% done just as a fan who loves music. And, and hopefully that's what's striking a chord with people, you know, and that's the thing that I, I'm most proud of, really, is even with, you know, as I said, with the GTO, when I, when I kind of dug my heels and wouldn't let the guys let the guy rewrite our material, it's like, you know, musicians that, you know, will let, you know, other people write songs for them or rewrite stuff for them. Or, you know, I, I remember LaRue mentioned a very interesting thing on your podcast as well. He said that, uh, you know, there was a title for a song or, like, lyrics, and they thought it sounded, you know, the producers and the managers were like, oh, it doesn't sound, you know, like, tough enough or it doesn't sound this way that doesn't yeah. happen in white wizard you know what i mean you know for one our, our label gives me you know eric records gives me 100 percent creative control and I, I could give them tons of credit for that um they, they don't step in on a single session or try to tell me what to do digby trust me as a songwriter and what i basically what i write ralph produces and Wyatt sings is what they get and um right. they, they were so happy with over the top i think they were they were fine with that they gave me that creative control with over the top and they did with this as well and um you know, we don't have guys that are, you know, trying to rewrite song titles or telling us stuff is to this or to that. And that's something that I'm really proud of more than anything. No matter what, when I walk away from this, whether I make any money out of it or not, or make it, or whether it becomes huge or we just end up, you know, riding off in the sunset with a couple of few records, um, I'll, I'll know that none of it was contrived. You know what I mean? And that's something right. that at the core means more to me than anything. You know, and whatever anybody says about you... It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you know, you never sold your soul. And it's, uh, you know, again, I, I, I always reference back to Rush because they're the, they're the high priests of everything that I, you know, am inspired by and, 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 and people as well as musicians. And, and, you know, I know Cliff at the end says that. He says, in the end, um, you know, not, not ever selling out is rewarded. You know, Rush is a prime example of that. They never, you cannot help but be inspired by the fact that they never, ever gave in 2112 is so emblematic of that. It's such an important record because it's like, to the musician, to myself, it's like, yes, that's what it's all about. It's like, it's, it's complete fearlessness as an artist. And that's another thing is, is White Wizard songwriting is completely fearless. I knew going into this that death metal guys would say we're pussies. And I knew that, I knew <laughs> signing to Earache Records, I'm like, my God, I'm signing to Earache. How ironic is this? You know, like the, the <laughs> label known for extreme metal and everything I'm rebelling against when I formed White Wizard with a little bit of, you know, Though I love some extreme metal bands, I was just, you know, I was just like, look, you know, there's no songwriting left in metal, you know, and, and I'm tired of everybody working out their angry, their anger issues. It's like, dude, I know you're pissed. Let's just get back to writing songs. Yes, life sucks. <laughs> let's, you know, let's have a beer and celebrate, you know, and just enjoy the fact that, be, you know, feel blessed to be alive and put the top down, the sun's out, man, let's rock some tunes. And that's really what the band at the core is really all about, too. It's just, you know, getting back to good times and heavy metal and, uh, kind of putting down the fist for a while and putting down the, you know, the different reasons why you're angry and just trying to, you know, get out there. And that's what's funny to me is everybody, one, just one ironic twist on the whole, 
you know, take on John Leon, you know, Dave Mustaine, or, you know, he's this, that. The funny thing is, it, it's, it's such a 180 from really who I am as a core as an artist and what White Wizard was formed out of. I mean, it's, it's all about, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, I'm a really happy, like, you know, energized artist. I love music and, like, that's what White Wizard's all about. You know, it's not about anything. It's not about being pissed off. It's not about, you know, um, you know, any of that stuff. It's, it's completely about at the core, just a love for music. And, and that's really, I think, I think that's what's transcending. And, and how many people end up, you know, hearing us? I, I do say that White Wizard's only thing is I think we just need to be heard by more people. Hopefully right. touring and hopefully a continual push will help do that. I, I feel that, I feel we've got good songs and I feel we've got, you know, and that, that truth that's in it, you know, that it's not contrived and that it's just, it, it, it's truly written from the heart and, and from a true kind of fan standpoint. I think hopefully over time that's going to resonate. And I think our back catalog is strong. And I think as we go forward, we've still got great songs in the back catalog. And hopefully over time, as we build more and more songs and more albums, um, people will continue to, to gravitate towards it. And, and, that's great. And whoever does, you know, I, I'm very thankful and I feel again, blessed to be doing it. And, um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, but you know, all we can do right now is move upwards and onwards and, you know, keep all that stuff behind us and learn from it. And uh, that's what we're doing. You know, we're just completely focused on getting out there and touring right now. And then what better to go out than with one of my, you know, my favorite bands when I was a kid forbidden, you know, I mean, it's, it's a dream come true. And, um, I'm really, really excited to go out and, and be able to watch their set every night. And I, I mean, I was bummed when they broke up. I mean, I was like really bummed out. And when they got back together, I went and saw them, man, like twice. I went to San Francisco for one of their hometown, you know, shows. And <laughs> like, man, this is killer. And um, actually, a guy who's in their band now, Steve Smythe, who was in um, Nevermore for a while, and uh, right. he also, I think, was with, with uh, Eric Peterson. He was a guitar teacher in my hometown where I grew up in Northern California before he uh, joined, you know, with Eric Peterson and did Dragon Lord and all that stuff. And um, so I knew him, you know, we used to talk outside the music store, he'd be smoking a cigarette and he used to teach a lot of my friends and he had a cover band. I still think they play shows once in a while called Sweet Leaf up in our hometown, which is a, an Aussie era, um, like Randy Rhodes era like cover band and they do some Sabbath as well fantastic right. cover band. And I remember watching Smythe. He was just amazing. So I wasn't surprised when he, you know, ended up kind of getting in some main bands, but um, it was really awesome. He joined Forbid and I was, you know, listen, I'm like, this is killer. So now, you know, it's kind of cool to get to go out and it's going to be a fun tour. You know, we're doing the whole Northwest and Canada during June. It's going to be, uh, you know, good times, good weather. And uh, so we're all excited just getting ready for that now. We're just in rehearsals and, um, you know, just looking forward to going forward and then hopefully go over to Europe later this year and then get back on the road in the U.S. and Canada in the fall and see how it all goes.
you go, little shooting star with Peter Ellis on lead vocals. So yeah, that was um, that was Mr. Leone's uh, take on the other former members. And uh, again, I get along great with everyone that I've come in contact with from the band, and uh, and have no problem, you know, playing good music if I think music is good. You know, none of these people have personally done anything to me, so it's almost like uh, breaking up with an ex-girlfriend and or uh, breaking up with with a girlfriend, excuse me, and saying you can't speak to her anymore. So, and and you know, I've been open with everyone else from the uh, from the camp that uh, that at one point or another I wanted to speak to John Leone. So, there you go. That's part two. There's still a third part coming because. We thought, or I thought, that that was it. That was what we were going to use. And since things were being held over uh, because of the uh, hiatus that I'd taken there, uh, John contacted me out of the blue and pretty much said, hey, if you haven't heard, uh, Wyatt left the band. And my first reaction was, holy shit, you know, I couldn't believe it. You know, we'd just spoken, you know, about a month prior and everything was great. And, you know, he had really high hopes for the album and everything else. And then all of a sudden he dropped this bomb on me. So it was um, was rather interesting. And I jumped at the chance to, uh, to, to do another segment to bring to you guys regarding um, White's departure from the band once again. And regarding what future the band was going to have at that point. Uh, what we're going to do is wrap this part of the interview up or, or this segment with the track High Speed GTO. And we'll come back with the third and final part of this interview. And what we'll do there is we'll discuss, you know, what is going on with White Wizard at this point in time. I mean, if if you've read anything up on uh, Blabbermouth or gone to uh, Earache's website, they do explain in a little bit of detail where the band is currently at. But, uh, yeah, I received a, um, a a press release there from the great folks over at uh, Earache from Toledo, and she did, uh, you know, mention uh, what, you know, what what the label stance is with the band currently. But uh, we'll leave you with High Speed GTO before coming back with the third and final part of the John Leone interview. (laughs) 